You are listening to the Hope Fellowship Church Podcast. To find more information about our church and ministries, check out our website at hopeandanderson.com. Now, this week's teaching. Good morning. My name is Janet, and I have been attending Hope for nearly five years, and I love every minute of it. Please stand today for the reading of God's word. Passage today is found in Judges chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren. She had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to this woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Miss Janet. As you are seated, turn to someone next to you and say good morning to them. And then tell them you need Jesus. Just not with any spite in your voice or anything like that. Just you need Jesus. Also, I think maybe some of you would agree. I would love the, I'm going to contact the Bible app to get Miss Janet to, so I can read the Bible or listen to the Bible in Janet's voice. That would be stupendous. Yeah, yeah. But I really am excited and thankful to be with you all this morning. My name is Nathan. I'm the college pastor here. And uh, just thankful that I get to be here. Uh, our whole staff, or not our whole staff, but the majority of our staff got hit with the flu this week. So it ravaged us, I will say, is the most appropriate word for that. Um, and I am here by the grace of God. I don't want to blame anyone, but if I would, it would be Pastor Mark uh, for giving us the flu. Uh, as he, it seems like, got it first. Um, but we're okay. All that it's left me with is a cough. And some congestion. So if I start to sound like a scientific professor explaining the ozone layer up here, I apologize or anything like that. So if I need to explain a theological concept, I'll just lean into the congestion and, and use that voice. But today, uh, we are in our last judge in our sermon series, Judges. Judges 13, Samson, who is our 12th and final judge. And I am excited to start this mini-series of Samson that we'll be in for the coming weeks, just because Samson's another one of those examples of a story that I read as a kid that was a lot different than when I read it as an adult. There's a lot of stories like that for me throughout Scripture, one of them being like the, the walls of Jericho. It's a really cute song. You sing the walls came tumbling down, and they're blowing trumpets and horns. It's so fun. Until as an adult, you read that story, and you realize that they murdered every person, woman, and child inside of those walls. 
Falls or uh, Jonah from our summer series. I always just thought he was an asparagus who was in a fish at one point, right? Like he was just this cool asparagus guy and he was in the fish for a little bit and he got spit out. And then you get past that VeggieTales theology and you read the story as an adult and you realize that he was kind of the worst. He always complained. He never really did what God wanted him to do. And he was just kind of uh, B-U-T-T through it all. And Samson's kind of the same for me. When I was a kid, he was this larger than life, Herculean character that, you know, tore down the temple by the might of his strength and defeated God's enemies. When in reality, the story of Samson is one of a very sad man who was never truly devoted and who lacked discipline towards a God who had gifted him great potential and purpose. So Samson this morning is kind of one of those characters as we start to look at over the next couple of weeks that you might start to rethink how we should be uh, maybe uh, mirroring our life after the person of Samson or wanting the life of Samson. But it's Judges 13 where his story starts, almost his origin story for us this morning, as we don't really get to look at Samson necessarily, but we look at his parents actually. So if you haven't already opened your Bibles, Judges 13 verse 1, and reread that. The people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And we pause here because what we need to notice is that at the start of every judge, he sets the scene, Samuel the author, sets the scene for us so that we understand the backdrop as to what kind of environment, what kind of context, what kind of aroma the judge is coming into. And for him, he's coming into where the Israelites have done what is evil in the sight of the Lord, and they are now oppressed and enslaved by the Philistines. We, we've talked about this cycle of judges, uh, maybe beating a dead horse with it, but this is essential for us to understand the book of Judges, to understand and see the cycle of Judges every time we get a new one introduced, that the people are coming from a period of peace, then they start doing something evil, so God sends bad people to oppress them. For a while, they're enslaved until eventually they cry out, and God sends a deliverer or a judge to them to save them out of those hands, and then they get back into this period of peace until once again they start doing what is evil. It is this cycle that we have seen now 11 times, but for the first time and for the last time, we actually see this cycle broken. For the first time, there's a missing piece in this cycle of judges, and that is for the first time, the Israelites have stopped crying out to God for a deliverer. They are content. This is a new all-time low for the Israelites that show the disintegration of their morality and their spirituality as they are now accepting their enslavement as their new normal. It's as Mark said last week in his sermon that the, as, the longer you live next to the world or the longer that you live with idols in your life or around you, the more you will start to become like those things and the more you will start to submit to those things as your master. And so for those people, they have habitually done what is evil in the sight of the Lord for so long that their souls have been deformed and reformed back into the image of their idols and their oppressors. In the first verse, I know we have this tendency to get caught up on one verse here and never get past it, Mark, looking at you, uh, but it's because there's so much 
potency in just one verse, we're already issued this massive warning in the book of Judges, in the story of Samuel, that if you and I are not carefully aware of what we are doing, whether we're intentionally doing it or whether we're unintentionally doing it, slowly but surely, we will start to become numb to the sin and evil around us and numb to the effects that sin has in our life. Eventually, you and I will become content, complacent, and complicit with the sin that we commit to the point where we don't even cry out to God anymore to help us. For these people, they break this cycle of judges to show that over time, you should just see the deterioration of the Israelite people over the book of Judges. And here, it is at an all-time low because they don't care whether or not God comes to deliver them because they are content to do what is right in their own eyes, even if it means being enslaved. Again, another point for pause. Every time we start this new cycle, it either says that they were doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord, or they were doing what was right in their own eyes. And it's important for us to note that for them, they were doing nothing wrong. The standards of the world that they were in, the people that were oppressing them, they were following those standards. They were doing nothing wrong. They were not doing anything illegal to the people who had them captive. It's important for us to realize that it doesn't matter if the government says it's okay. It doesn't even really matter if your parents say it's okay. It doesn't matter if your friends are all doing it. What matters is if in the eyes of God, is it evil or is it right? Because for these Israelites... They were doing what was right in their own eyes, but doing what was evil in the sight of God. So what does God do with the people who don't want anything to do with him? What does God do with the people who are content to just live however they want to live for the rest of their life? Do we get an example of God's wrath? Do we get an example of of God smiting them? Do we get an example of God taking out his majestic two by four of correction and smacking them over the face with it? Not really. Instead, we get a picture here through Samson's story of a God being rich in mercy, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who begins a plan to deliver these people who don't even care if they are delivered. This is the pure, in one verse, everyone, we're not even past one verse. In one verse, we get a picture of the pure grace of God. We get the gospel in text, one verse, that this grace of God is someone who doesn't come just because we cried out to him. Who's coming and saving isn't contingent on what you and I are doing or not doing. It's not contingent on if we draw a circle and we don't leave it until God comes and help us. It's contingent on his commitments that he's made to his people. That's the grace of God is that he makes a commitment to these people. And because he conditioned that commitment to his character, he's going to go save them even when they don't deserve it. If that doesn't preach, I don't really know what preaches if if that doesn't. This is the gospel in the Old Testament. This is the grace of God in the Old Testament where so many people say, man, the Old Testament God is just mean and angry and wrathful. No, he's not. He's just and he's full of mercy. He's slow to anger and he is abounding in steadfast love. And that's on display in one verse when if he wanted to, he could have snapped his fingers. They would have disappeared and that would have been just. But instead he shows grace 
and he sends them a deliverer by means of a miraculous birth. It's Judges 13, verse 2. It says, there was a certain man of Zorah, the tribe of Danites, whose name was Manoah. Oh gosh, I wanted to make a joke there, but I'm not going to. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So we're introduced to Samson's parents, his origin story, so to speak, to kind of see not just the context and backdrop of the surrounding environment, but also his immediate background and backdrop and context that he is raised in as a child. And we see that he was given to a woman who was barren, whose womb was dead and could not produce life. For us, maybe you don't have many pictures of, maybe you do, maybe you don't, of of women who who can't have kids. And then God comes to them through an angel of the Lord and says that you're going to have a kid. If you do have a lot of those stories in your life, please come tell me because I would love to hear about those. But for the Old Testament, this isn't really anything new. God continually takes what is dead throughout scripture and makes it alive. And he does that through oftentimes barren women who can't have kids and gives them the gift of a child. You have Sarah in Genesis 11, Rebecca in Genesis 25, Leah in Genesis 29, Hannah in 1 Samuel, Michelle in 2 Samuel, Elizabeth in Luke, and now the wife of Manoah in Judges 13. And the angel of the Lord comes to her and says, once you could not have a child for this whole time, but you are going to have a son He is going to begin to save Israel. That's important to underline in your Bibles if you have that or write it down. He is going to begin to save Israel. Already we're seeing before Samson's ever even conceived in the womb that he is not going to complete the work of delivering the Israelites from the Philistine people. In fact, we see that the Israelites aren't completely delivered from Philistine until 2 Samuel with David, King David, the author of the Psalms. And so his life is going to be seemingly incomplete in his purpose and fulfillment of it. And then thirdly, the angel of the Lord says that he will be a Nazarite from the time that he is born until his death. Now, a Nazaritic vow wasn't necessarily uncommon in this day and age. It comes from Numbers 6, verses 1 through 21, if you want to go read that uh, after this. Uh, But essentially, it was just a vow that people took that separated them from the world and consecrated them to God. It, It was them wanting to radically show their devotion to God and them showing God that they had this great desire to see God move in some way, shape, and form around them. And so they would make this radical commitment by doing primarily three things. Things to separate and consecrate. They would drink no alcohol, they would touch no dead thing, and they would not put a razor to their head. So not necessarily uncommon, but what is uncommon here in this story and for the life of Salmon, Salmon, Samson, well, we'll just call him Salmon. How about that for the rest of the time? Well, what is uncommon though, is that this Nazaritic vow was always something that was optional And it was only ever for a period of time. And yet here we find one of two places in scripture, the other being Samuel in 1 Samuel, that God declares him to be someone and gives him a purpose for his life before he ever even is conceived. 
that Samson doesn't necessarily get a choice to choose this Nazaritic vow. God gives him this responsibility. And that he doesn't necessarily get to choose what he wants to be and do in this life. God declares and defines his purpose before Samson is ever even conceived. And I find that so fascinating that before he's ever even, before he was ever even a thought in his parents' mind, before he's ever growing in the womb, Think of how special this is, how much intentionality God puts into life and its creation is that he's not just creating life for the sake of life, but he has providential purposes for lives long before they're ever even in this world. How sacred are those who have yet to be born? If we were ever to doubt that God is not only in control but God powerfully works in this world to accomplish his plans by means of his providence. All we have to do is look at stories like this to see that before Samson was ever even in the womb, God was providentially destinying his purpose. And maybe for some, this is something hard to wrap your, our minds around that, that God defines who Samson is and tells him what he's going to be before he's ever even born. I read some comments that saying that this is God taking Samson's choice away and his free will away when that's not it at all. God here is not saying he's about to direct every single step of Samson and, and determine which way he turns for the rest of his life. God is not attaching strings to his life long before he's ever even born. All that God is doing And this is also a picture of God's providence for us that we oftentimes mistake God's providence for fate as if we can't do anything else other than what God has told us to do. But here is a picture of God's providence that God only declares who he is and what he is to do. And it's up to Samson in his life to live like the person God has told him he is. It's important for us. God declares who you and I are. You and I don't declare. I could declare. It's like the Michael Scott thing. I could declare bankruptcy. I could declare that I'm saved. I could declare that I am a son and a daughter. I I could declare all these things, but it's not until the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things, and the savior of the world says, you are my son. God declares, and then it's up to us our responsibility to live like the person he has called you and created you to be. But what I find most interesting in these first eight verses here is at the beginning of Samson's story, the angel Lord doesn't tell Samson his purpose. He tells his parents Samson's purpose. God entrusts Manoah and his wife with both the purposes for Samson and also the raising of him in order to get him to a place where he can fulfill those purposes. And I think this should create pause to any parent in the room this morning of young kids or middle school kids or high school kids, parents who, people who want to be parents, and to start asking some questions that I think are really, really important that this text implies us and implores us to ask. Three questions I think every parent should ask. It's, do you know what your child's purpose is? Have I asked God for what their purpose is? And am I the mother or father or guardian training them up in it and for it? 
I think three of the most, these are three of the most important questions that we could be asking ourselves and seeking wisdom and guidance from God and others in order to be asking, or even if you're not a parent and you're just here, some of the most important questions you could ask yourself is, do I know why I'm here? Do I know what God has in store for me? Do I know what God's called me to do, whether that's a general calling that he gives to all followers or a specific calling that he's burdened your heart with for a people or a problem? And then how am I training myself up in tandem with the spirit, with the Holy Spirit who's been given to me? What am I doing to be intentional with my formation? When we found out we were having a daughter, I, I only have a 15-month-old, so I'm not saying I'm, I'm doing this great. She's 15 months old. All we do is read her like the Bible that's literally like God created the world. There were animals. It was good. It's like it's, it's not really anything, and she can't even read. So it's not like we're necessarily doing this right now, but I had a deep conviction the moment that we found out we were having a daughter to start seeking God and to start seeking out other men and women who I saw raising women of the faith who were strong in their faith, who were strong in knowing who God had created them and called them to be. I started to have this conviction to go, okay, what can I be doing now? What can I be doing in three years and five years and 10 years and 15 years to ensure that I am carrying out the responsibility that God has entrusted me with to to not only tell her who she is, to not only tell her what God has created her to do, but to also prepare her to fulfill that calling in her life. All of these things, all of these desires for her. Cassie's got the basketball down to train her up to be a UConn player. I'll take care of some of the spiritual stuff so that she can just become the best basketball player and be a light to those teams. Hallelujah, for sure. But none of that stuff just happens randomly or by happenstance. That stuff happens only when we as the parents are taking it as serious as it needs to be. Only when we are actually preparing for it. Proverbs 22.6, probably the most cliche parenting verse of all time. Train up a child in the way that they should go. And when they are old, they will not depart from it. The clicheness of this text has made us dumb this down to basically just think that it's talking about helping our kids memorize some scripture and know what the Bible says. When an athletic word is invoked in this verse, to train up, everyone say train up. If you think of an athlete, let's, let's think of an Olympic athlete for a moment. If you look at their training regimen, they devote hours they devote money and they devote a lot of thoughts and attention to just a plan as to how they can start to practice to be the best they could possibly be. Or when they actually start practicing, they devote hours and money and a lot of thought and attention to practicing until what they do is perfect. Or, or what a famous Olympic athlete said, I think she was a skier, I don't remember her name, but she said that what separates Olympic athletes from any other athlete is the fact, not that their practices are any harder, not that their plans are any better, but that they recover better than any other athlete. They spend hours and money and time and thoughts and attention into simply just how to recover from that training. Friends, if they're doing all that just so that they can run faster than someone from another country, how much more should we be devoting hours, money, 
time, thoughts, and attention to training up our children for things that are eternal and of eternal value. Not many more things are important than the role of a parent who has a responsibility to train up their child in the way that they go. This responsibility falls first and foremost on the parent. It's not a pastor's. It's not Pastor Jordan's. It's not Pastor Travis's back in Hope Youth. Man, they do a great job for sure and all their volunteers. But if you're leaving it up to them, them, they only have them for a couple hours a week at best. And it's chaotic in those rooms if you've ever been in there. So they don't even really have one kid. They have like 10,000 children running around. They're not even giving that attention to one kid. I hate to break that glass for you and shatter that thought. But I mean, you're, who knows what your kid is doing right now in Hope Kids? We don't know. We know. We know. We got cameras. Don't worry. It's not a pastor's responsibility, but too often in this culture, we leave it up to the pastor to do the Christian stuff, and we take care of making sure they get good grades. We take care of making sure that they're not going to end up on the street. We take care of making sure that they have some good morals and values inside them. But as far as the spiritual things go, we'll leave that up to the pastor. But it's not the pastor's responsibility. It's not a friend's. It's not a mentor's. It is you, the parent. Us, the parent. This is not a light thing to be entrusted with. I think every parent recognizes that when they have a kid and then they, the, the doctors say, okay, you can go home now and you're going there, excuse me. Is there a manual that comes with this thing besides don't put them face down in the crib because I would like to know a little bit more information than just that. This is not a light thing to be entrusted with. And it doesn't start, our preparation and training doesn't start when they're eight or 13. It starts before they're ever even born because before they're ever even born, they are more than a thought in God's mind because God is thinking of them and about them and preparing purposes and plans for them long before we are ever even thinking of having kids. And we see Manoah and his wife treat this responsibility with all seriousness as they Manoah hears his wife say this is what the angel Lord has said to me and this is who our son is going to be and immediately we see in verse 8 Manoah say oh Lord please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with this child who will be born I sense a lot of desperation in that prayer and God listens to Manoah and the angel Lord comes to him and look at what Manoah asks him directly He says, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is to be his mission? What is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? An incredible question that we could be asking ourselves. And while this is a fantastic question that shows the heart of Manoah, that he just wants to make sure he does this right, we also have to realize that this is the wrong question. This is the wrong thing to want from God. Because Manoah here has gotten the declaration of his son's purpose. He's gotten, this is what your son is created to do. This is who your son has been called to be. Manoah most likely maybe has the the Torah or a knowledge or working understanding of the Torah and some things that he could start doing. And he has a working, should have a working understanding of who God is that he can start imparting onto his son. But he needs more. He wants step-by-step directions. He wants the full 10,000 page instruction manual about how to make sure Samson becomes who God has created him to be. 
And I love this question because I think so many of us, when we think of God's will, we become so curious that we want to know all the little details and step-by-step directions when that's not really how God's will ultimately works. God's will is more concerned about destination than it is directions. More about where we are going than the step-by-step steps that we need to take in order to get where he has called us to be. Uh, When it comes to traveling, driving, I am very, I got my, my, my parents are sitting front row and uh, I got my mom's jeans and I am very directionally challenged. Anybody else in the room directionally challenged? Raise your hands. Be honest. Come on. Directionally challenged. Yeah, absolutely. So wherever I go, I am pulling up my phone to make sure that I can get there because there may have been a building torn down that throws me for a loop. I may turn one wrong turn and instantly I am lost. If an apocalyptic event happens, there are four places I know I could get to without my Apple Maps. And that is this church, my house, Aldi, and Chick-fil-A. That's it. Besides that, I got nothing. Like I, I, this, I'm lost and I'm just going to chill out at the house or, or come here and you guys can come join me. I've lived in Anderson for over eight years now and I still pull up Apple Maps to get to places that I've been to at least 30 times. Okay, so I, sure, I could, I could try to wing it the first time, but I know I'm going to get lost and I know I'm going to have to pull out my phone at a stoplight or a stop sign. So I might as well suck down my pride and just go ahead and pull it up so I can get to the place where I want to go. Now, my lovely wife, on the other hand, does not need step-by-step directions. She has this insane internal compass that as long as she knows where you want to go, she can get you there somehow. I have seen this on display. It is amazing to witness, okay? She says oftentimes that she likes the adventure of not having directions because she likes just figuring out where to go. Any other psychopaths like that in the room today? Thank you for being honest about your disorder. That's important. Acceptance is really the first step in healing. I actually think the police are missing out with Cassie. They could say, Cassie, find cocaine. And she would lead them to a house that has cocaine in it or something like that. That's how incredible this is. It's not that she doesn't use directions or that she doesn't ever like, she's like, you know, like, no, don't give me directions. I can do this, right? She'll take them. It's just that she doesn't need them in order to get to the destination that she's going. This is a little bit how God's will works in our life. It's not about us following a step-by-step, turn left in 300 feet set of directions. It's about moving and knowing the destination to the point where we are. there's a gravitational pull in us that just slowly but surely brings us there. Maybe it takes a little bit longer. Maybe every other person is gonna choose a different route to get there but eventually they get to the destination. Paul in Romans 12, I think, gives a perfect picture of the will of God in our life. In Romans 12, too, one of my favorite passages of all time, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Notice how he phrases this at the beginning. He says, do not be conformed to this world. Or sorry, he doesn't say, do not be conformed to this world, but be conformed to God. He's not saying that we are just to do 
A to Z, to the letter, exactly what God is listing out for us. That's the stuff of Leviticus, friends. In Old Testament, you have a whole book where God has laid out to the letter exactly what they have to do in order to become like God, in order to get to be who God has created them to be, as holy and righteous and like God in his image. Except the people of Leviticus misunderstood the reason for those rules and regulations time and time again, because God was not giving those to them so that they could be conformed to all those things. God was giving that to them because he was trying to put his heart on display that he wanted to save them from their sin. He loved them so much that he was saying, here, do all of these things and then you can be with me. Do all of these things and then you could do it. He was trying to put on display his heart for his people, that he was willing to do anything in order to have them back into that restored relationship with him. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Everyone say transformed. Transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. That as you and I Set our minds on the things of God, on the things that are above, not on the things that are below, as Colossians 3 says. As we slowly start to have a revelatory picture of God's character and nature, it's not that we become conformed, it's that we become transformed. What allows you and I to discern and do the will of God in our life is not conforming to a set of external actions. It's by being transformed to a set of internal motivations that make us act and think and live like the person that God has called us and created us to be. And and God in his goodness and grace knows that some of us need more. He knows that there are people like me who are directionally challenged. So he gives over 500 commands in the New Testament. It's not like he's saying, I'm not giving you anything. It's just that even if we were to conform to all of those standards perfectly, we wouldn't be transformed like we would be if we simply just meditated on the character and nature of God. I remember I used to be so frustrated when pastors, I came here before I was even a pastor and Mark says a lot to meditate on the character and nature of God. And I remember my head used to be just so frustrated with that. I was like, give me something practical. That's not helpful. And there'll come a point, hopefully when it starts to click that that is probably the most practical, helpful advice. And we just hate it because it takes the control out of our hands and says, no, it's not really anything that you're doing that changes you. It's all by who you are setting your life towards that what changes you. It's about a transforming knowledge of the person of God as he has revealed himself to be in Jesus Christ. God does all these things in scripture because he doesn't want a people who are conformed to his ways. He wants a people whose hearts and minds have been transformed by his character. And as we fixate on who he is, as we, as we meditate more and more on the character and nature of God, then what slowly happens is that we become transformed so that we have an internal compass that shifts our values, that shifts our wisdom, that shifts our love to look less like this world, to look less like this flesh, to look less like Satan's vision for our life and more like God's purposes and plans for each of us. 
So when Manoah asks for more rules and more details, the exact manner of what his life will be, God comes back and doesn't, he gives him the same exact thing that he's already spelled out. In 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 those middle verses, uh, uh, 12 and 13, he, he says exactly what he's already said. But he's not just coming back just to repeat himself. He's coming back because he's trying to say, Manoah, I'm trying to give you something better than a list of directions step by step. I'm trying to give you an encounter. If you read these last 10 verses, it's heavily focused on their interaction with the angel of the Lord. And what we start to see is that God is trying to give them an encounter in these last 10 verses. In order to see what God is doing, we have to really understand just for a second who the angel of the Lord is. In verses 15 and 16, the angel of the Lord comes back and Manoah tries to prepare a meal for him. But instead, the angel of the Lord says that you should prepare a sacrifice to the Lord. Or in verse 17, Manoah says, can I know your name? What's your name? And he says, why do you ask me my name? Seeing it is wonderful next to wonderful, right? Beyond understanding. Or finally, verse 19 and 20, when the flame is burning the offering, he, the angel of the Lord goes up into the flame, similar to that of Judges 6 with Gideon in the story and his interaction with the angel of the Lord. God's trying to give us a picture of who the angel of the Lord actually is so we can see the purpose of what God is actually doing here. If it's not clear yet, we can go outside of even just this story and start looking at scripture where the angel of the Lord appears. Exodus 3, the burning bush narrative, we see that the burning bush, uh, the the first voice is, or, or the voice that comes out, it says the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame out of the fire, out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Next slide. And then it says, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And then the next slide, we get as clear of a picture as we could possibly get. He said, the voice in the bush that was the angel Lord that was now clarified as God, Yahweh. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Or in Jude verse 5, go to the New Testament for an example. He says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. We can see in the Exodus narrative that it's the angel of the Lord who guides them by day and by night out of slavery into the promised land. But Jude here seems to say that it is Jesus. And what we start to see revealed in scripture is that the angel of the Lord is like an angel, but greater than an angel. The angel of the Lord is constantly mistaken for God, but he's distinct from God. The angel of the Lord really feels like God, but they can look on him. They can hear his voice. They can know this being, and yet they're not dying, even though they seem to be getting a full picture of God. Does that sound like anyone we know? What we have to understand, not because this is just some nerd out moment where I get to use my congested voice. This is essential for us to understand that the angel of the Lord is actually Jesus appearing in the Old Testament, accommodating himself to his people. Because what God is trying to say here to Manoah, what God is trying to say is that you do not need more sets of rules and regulations in order to raise this son to be who I have called him to be. You do not need a list of directions and step-by-step informational processes to help train him up in the way that you should go. The most helpful thing I can give to you is an encounter. 
the most helpful thing I can give to you both for your son becoming who I have created and called him to be and for yourself to be who I want you to be is a full revelation of me to see that I am the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the sustainer of all things, the one who when we look upon him, we see the full revelatory picture of God on display for us to see in glory. Friends, we don't need more rules and regulations. If you're, wanting, if you're sick and tired of, of sinning over and over again, if you're caught in a habitual cycle like these Israelites were, if you find yourself lost and just not even wanting to cry out, you don't need a set of rules to conform to. You need an encounter to be transformed by. We need to see Jesus and only Jesus. And when we see him, that's when we're changed. When we encounter him, that's when we are transformed. When we know him, we start to become more like him. This is what we need because we can do all of the right things. You can give all of your money away to the poor. You can serve here and in the community. You can go on mission trips. You can live life on mission. You can be kind to everyone. You can treat everyone with love and respect. You can stop and do the hard things and pour into people and ask them how they're doing and actually fulfill things and requests that they have. You can even, Jesus says, you can cast out demons in his name. You can heal people in his name. You can preach the gospel. And he doesn't say you can think you're doing it. He's saying you can actually do those things. And yet if you you never know him. It doesn't matter. Jesus says, there are going to be people who did all of these things in my name, but they are going to end up in hell because they never had a transforming encounter. This is what we need this morning. Friends, we don't push morality, even though holiness is so important to God. Read uh, Jackie O'Perry's Holy of the Now or A.W. Tozer's Holy, Holy of Holies to see how much God cares about us living the right way, living how we have been called. Absolutely. But we don't push morality in order to change people. We don't tell people you need to stop doing this or you need to start doing this in order to become more like Jesus. You need a full picture, a full revelation imprinted on your mind so that you have the goodness and the glory and the grace of God in your being that you can meditate on night and day and be transformed by. And so what we preach is boldly, loudly, and unashamedly Jesus, because Jesus is what will transform people to do the things that maybe we want them to do or not do the things that we don't want them to do. But if, if you have a heart for a friend or a family member, the best thing we can be doing for them is by preaching and presenting a picture of the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. So that by seeing him and hearing him and knowing him, they would be changed. Judges in its own sick and twisted way preaches Jesus and the gospel. It's maybe a little bit more gruesome than other books and how they preach it, but they preach Jesus because every single judge out of these 12 judges is a shadow of the one to come. Every single one of them have similarities to the life of Jesus. Samson is no different. Samson and Jesus both 
uh, birth, both births are announced by an angel. Both births are, con- uh, both conceptions are miraculous. We see that they both grow in strength and power. In Judges 13, 24, it says he was born and he started to grow. He grew and the Lord blessed him. Verse 25, and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him. He's endowed with the Holy Spirit. No other judge has the spirit of the Lord given to him similar to Jesus. They're both rejected by their own people. They're both delivered into pagan people and held captive by them. But what Samson continually does is he falls short in every area. He never lives like the person who God declared him to be before he was ever conceived. Samson isn't able to actually deliver the Israelites from the Philistines. Samson's story serves to help us see maybe better than any other judge that what we need is not another judge to deliver us. We don't need another set of rules to follow and conform to. We need a savior who can do what we cannot, who can through his commitment come to us even when we don't want him to, draw us out of our sin, get us out of our enslavement and bondage, to lead us into a better way And not just temporarily for 40 years of peace or 60 years of peace, but for an eternity of rest and resting in his fullness and glory and grace. So if you're in the room this morning and you are struggling to know, God, who do you want me to to marry? God, who do you want, what, what job do you want me to take? God, what school am I supposed to go to? God, what restaurant do I need to eat at so I don't get food poisoning after this? Whatever questions you're asking God, while it may feel frustrating, what we're called to do is surrender to the mysteries of God in such a way where we say, God, I am choosing to focus on who you are. I'm choosing to focus on who you have revealed yourself to be in my life and in those lives around me. I am going to meditate day and night on your word that reveals who you are and your heart towards me and that your love is towards me. And I am simply going to surrender to what you have called me to do and who you have created me to be. And I am going to trust that where I lack, you'll make up. Where I make mistakes, by your grace, you'll redeem those mistakes. And that while my road looks a lot different than each of yours, I'm not going to compare it to anybody else's because like Cassie, I just know the destination. And my road might take a couple different turns, but I'm going to get there, not because of what I am doing, but because of who is in me, guiding, leading, and saving me. Friends, that's our hope. That's what we hold on to, that even if you don't know what to do tomorrow, we have some general purposes that we can do. And we have a God who we see has prepared things for us. Maybe not like Samson. Hopefully not like, I don't want a life like Samson's. You'll see in a little bit. You'll see in a couple weeks. But who has prepared things for us before we were ever even conceived in our mother's womb. He has plans and purposes And he is faithful to fulfill them. Not because of what you do or what I do, but because of his commitment that was conditioned on his character. What a peace. What a hope and joy that allows us to rejoice and give thanks no matter the circumstance, knowing that he is 
actually working all things out. And all we have to do is surrender to his power and purposes in our life. Just take a posture of prayer with me for a moment. Father, for those of us who are more focused on what we can do for you, who are more focused on our love for you, who are more focused on how we are doing, would you just strip away all of those bondages of pride in us that we maybe are aware of or unaware of? And would you just in this moment allow us to see and hear and know like the song that we sang before this sermon, that we are more loved than we will ever be in this exact moment right now as we are. Father, would we begin to have a transforming knowledge of your unending, abounding, unbreakable love towards us, heart towards us, that we are like ants in the dirt and yet you intimately and deeply know each of us, care for, care for us and you were thinking of us before we were ever born. Father, strip all pride and allow the humble thought that you love us before we ever even do anything for you that you love us even when we don't want anything to do with you. Give us that kind of humility, God, that allows us to follow you and to live a life that is synonymous with who you have created and called us to be that runs on the fuel of your love and your grace. Father, for those who are just struggling to figure out the answers, would you relieve them of their curiosity and just assure them that you've got it? For the lies that Satan spews, that you don't know what you're doing, you're holding out on us, or that, Father, we could do better than what you're doing for us. In the name of Jesus, we rebuke those lies and we say, you are the perfect planner. Father, you are not withholding, but you give all things to us in your person and son, Jesus. Father, we surrender everything to you. And we just plead that you would come and give us an encounter this morning. That you would give us an encounter tomorrow when we're changing our baby's diaper. That you would give us an encounter when we're showering, preparing for work, that you would give us an encounter on a lunch break when it's just fluorescent lights above us flickering. That you would give us an encounter when preschoolers or fourth graders or high schoolers are screaming all around us in chaos. That you would give us an encounter, not in these magnificent moments of Sunday mornings, but in the small moments of washing dishes. Meet us where we're at, Father. Give us an encounter that we may see and hear and know you and be transformed by that. Father, we give you all things. We praise you for all things. We rejoice in all things. As God's people, we say, amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's teaching. We hope you have a great week. 